Bueno, ¿listo, Keenan? Sí, sí, estoy listo. <laughs> All right, Keenan. Well, again, we finally making this happen. Thank you so much for accepting my invite. I know this is a very busy, stressful time for you. Uh, again, uh, I've been following you since COVID started, maybe a month after that. And I, I, I really want to thank you personally because you're doing an amazing job. You're my primary source of news, and I'm sure it's the same thing for a lot of other people. So first of all, thank you for that. Thank you for showing up. I appreciate your time. So again, gracias por venir, señor. Uh, don't worry about it. No, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be in the role that I am right now for the community because of, of how important the work that we're doing is during this health emergency. It has been really... Uh, uh, an experience to see how much people have gravitated towards the work that I'm doing. And uh, a lot of people have been telling me the same thing over the last few months that, you know, they really, they trust me in, in the work that I'm doing with the coronavirus. So uh, it, it does make me happy and feel like the work that I'm doing really matters to people. No, it definitely does. We'll talk about COVID. We'll talk about vaccines, a lot of questions around that, but let's get started with uh, getting to know a little bit about you. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about you, how you became El Paso's favorite news reporter. Um, I am originally from Raleigh, North Carolina. I grew up born and raised on the East Coast and uh, loved it there. Obviously, a, a whole different world here from El Paso, but I'll get into that in a second. Um, I went to college in Virginia at a small school called Washington and Lee, where I studied broadcast journalism and uh, got my, my first reporting and anchoring experience there doing the student broadcast for four years. And after that, I made my way to Atlanta for an internship in CNN's Southeast Bureau, which was a really, really cool experience and a chance to shadow some of the highest level reporters in the entire country, you know, at the, at the network level to see how they did the job. And from there, I was able to get set up with KFOX and CBS here to start my first professional on-air real-life reporting job, and that was in February 2019. So I'm going on two years here in El Paso at this point, which is really cool. It is. Let, let's go ahead and go back a little bit. What, what made you want to become a journalist? Uh, that is a really good question. I've always had a love for, for movies, for cinematography, for video. That was how I actually started it in high school. Uh, because we had we had a video one course and I loved movies and I was like I'm going to be a director I'm going to be a filmmaker and I got into it and that's how that's the first time I picked up a camera and started doing my own shooting and things like that and the way that the course progressed was the first step was learning how to shoot and everything but the video two was the news program course where you actually have to go out and shoot news packages at the, in high school on stuff was this junior year sophomore freshman what was i was this? a sophomore Remember? i was like okay. 15 years old and uh that's that's the first time that i that was where my my news career began when i was literally 15 and shooting news packages about I don't know, a blood drive on campus and things like that and that that was when for the first time i was like this is like a practical application of kind of the skills that I love for like making movies and, and video. And I could, I could see myself doing this. Do you remember an exact moment that you said, you know what, I'm good at this, or I definitely want to do this as a career. Do you remember that? Moment? When I was getting good feedback on the, the standups that I was doing for like my packages. Like if you watch a story, a that I do, when you watch a story that I do, obviously there's the part where I'm just my voiceover and the, the video is there and I'm telling a story. Right. But you know, Sometimes there will be parts in the middle of it where I'm on camera and I'm I'm in a break-in just like explaining a situation or even my live intro at the beginning where I'm on camera about to introduce my story. And my teacher was like, even you know, 15 years old, you you seem natural and you seem like you're you have a good handle on this already, like you're you're doing a good job. And 
they're like, that's something you can't really teach. So when they said that, I was like, okay, or this this is this is kind of a real a real situation now. This is a, this is becoming real to me. Well, did you have the support of your parents? Were your parents okay with that? Did they have maybe another plan for you? Uh, my parents are both attorneys, so every day that I'm not in law school breaks their heart. <laughs> so um, <laughs> don't worry. Anytime there's any any sort of issue at work, like I'll get frustrated when I have a hard day in the office, and you know my dad will be like. Hey, I'm uh, I'm just feeling burnt out, and he's like, oh, there's always law school. <laughs> like, That's okay, funny, I'm not I that burnt that out. That happens to a lot, but I'm sure they're proud of you because you they know the progress that you've been making, and of course that you love what you do. I mean, you can tell the the, the passion that you put into the work, so I'm I'm sure they're also happy about that. Yes, it's all it's all in good fun. And I'm like, hey, I, I took the LSAT right when I got out of college, so I'm like, it's good for five years if anything terrible happens with my career here. So I got I got a backup plan. <laughs> Well, perfect. All right, let's talk a little bit when you move to El Paso, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk a little bit about the culture shock. I'm sure you experienced that coming from, again, from from the southern states to not only another city, but this is a very heavy Hispanic community. So talk to us about that. What was the hardest part? Uh, I went to a, a very big public school in North Carolina growing up, but the demographic of the community and I mean, the Hispanic population there was all but non-existent, right? I didn't have any interaction with it in my daily life to a point now where I got off the plane and I was like, wow, the wall is right there, first <laughs> off. And like, you know, when you're driving on, on 10 West through, uh, you got Watt is on one side and then on, UTEP on the hill and yeah. you just are like, I am on the board. Like, <laughs> you imagine there's a stretch of desert or something for like 10 miles before you hit the wall. And I was like, no, okay, this is a border city in in all in all measures of the word. Uh, before I moved to El Paso, I didn't know anything about it. I had to Google it to see where it was. And I got here and, you know, an 86% Hispanic population was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And it was not necessarily a bad thing, but it was just... Uh, it was extraordinarily different, both geographically to to anything I've, I'd ever seen, geographically and culturally. What was the hardest part of adapting to El Paso? Is it the language still, maybe? What is it? Um, definitely not necessarily the language. The, the fact that I needed to understand what mattered to people here. Because it was different than, obviously, my understanding in North Carolina of some of the things that mattered to people like my parents and their friends and, and family friends like that and, and the, the community I understood. I had to come here and and find out what was important to El Paso because it's my job to to tell them what's happening with what they care about. And so if I don't know that first part, I can't do my job effectively. Give us an example of that. What El Paso cares about. Yes. Um, Chico's. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Um, okay. Definitely, it would be, an easy one is when I got here. It was it was early 2019 at the peak of the humanitarian crisis, and I, for my first reporting job, literally get off the plane and there are migrants in the streets, and that was the you know, I mean, talk about a culture shock, right? It wasn't just the fact that the community of El Paso was so different. What the community was experiencing from from outside was also national news and and on everyone's radar at that time and i had to go out with my camera and they're like all right hit the ground running and it was it was just a wild time to to get into the field for the first time how do you feel now that you've been in el paso for two years of course you're 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 now 
Um, of course, more Verdad, paseño. <laughs> paseño, but sí. how you feel now compared? Do you still feel, I mean, you feel 100% now. There's still some things that you're still, uh, that, I don't know, catches you by surprise. Is there anything there or you're good now? What would you no, I think sometimes when, when I have to even tell stories in different neighborhoods, it's something that still, that still is, is noticeable to me, the difference between, between the parts of El Paso that was not in any way the same coming from, from North Carolina. Like, People are so passionate about what part of town it, a certain thing is uh, is in. Like when I told a story once last year or two years ago at this point um, about, I think, uh, Ross Middle School. And I said it was in Central, I think. And people are like, um, actually, it's in the Northeast and your entire story is irrelevant now. I didn't even listen to anything you said because you were so wrong. Uh, that's the most, that's, I think that's what, aside from high schools, that's what El Pasoans are most, are most passionate about. They're like it, um, actually it's in South Central. No. Oh my God. Regardless of how good everything Exa else was, no, you know, like, you lost them there. He lost me when he said Far East. It was actually just Middle East by the airport. <laughs> Get it right, you white boy. Exactly. Right? You know what I've been, well, I was checking your comments and, and one of the threat, the, one of the common trends that I noticed that a lot of people were, uh, you know, I'm putting comments on is my favorite white person, my favorite white person. And I thought it was so funny. I, I mean, I know that's a good I, thing, right? I but hold it's that just title hilarious. in high regard. I'm, I'm proud to, to hold up that banner. Going back to the culture shock, I will have to tell you that we, as an El Pasoan, like I was born in Mexico, but I mean, I've been living here for, what is it, 25 years, maybe 20 years. But we take that for granted. Even though I travel from Horizon all the way to the West every day, and I see exactly what you mean as far as the border town, well, the, um, what's it called, Anapra right there on, on next to, um, by the West side. And we take things for granted as far as speaking two languages, we take it for granted, right? Being able to understand once you travel and you meet other people that, you know what, that's not the norm. That's one thing, but also being able to adapt to different cultures. You're like, oh, okay, you know what, it is right. And then once you really analyze the situation or where we're from, I mean, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and again, I work in a place that we have a lot of visitors from out of, uh, out of town, right? And the first thing they say is that, you know what, El Paso, they're really nice people. I, I can just tell you that they're really nice. And when I try to analyze, why is it that we're nice? Because I agree, I think we're nice people. And I think that because we're in the border and we have, like, we have the advantage to see the situation in Mexico, which is not the best, but we also, now that we're here, we're in a better situation. We don't, we don't take that for granted. And because of that, we're nice. I don't know if maybe there's other reasons behind that, but that's kind of like one of the things that I think that um, influences as far as the way we treat people. Uh, for the most part, of course, and the way we handle our business here in El Paso. I think it's the nature of being a border city, honestly. Like the relationship that you have a, a ton of people every time that I tell a story and people think that Juarez needs to be included, they will let me know in a second, of course. But uh, everybody says two cities, one community, right? And it's the nature of the fact that El Paso is constant, like it's an entry point, right? People cross the border thousands of times every single day to live and work and and, and go about their lives. And the, the fluidity and openness of that situation is is part of the, the culture here. Absolutely. People are so welcoming. I love El Pasoans in general because you're right, they are kind. But I think that it's a big part of the fact that... Um, they they have to live life with like that open door and that and that constant transmission of people and th that's part of the spirit of this community 
Yeah, I agree. Kenan remembers not they anymore. It's we. I'm sorry. You don't was, know, it's very xenophobic. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. But yeah, we. I think we're grateful because we see both perspectives. And again, that that plays a lot of a big role in what we do and how we handle. Um, I mean, every everyday life here in El Paso. Let me ask you this. And you said that you Googled El Paso because you didn't know where El Paso was to begin with. So my question to you is, why did you chose El Paso as your first job as a reporter? Like I said, it was early 2019. And when I was at CNN, just before I took the job, you know, the only thing on TV was El Paso. It, even though this is a national network level newscast, everyone only cared about what the immigration situation was like here in this far corner of West Texas that I had no understanding of, but I saw it plastered on every national level newscast. And I was like, hey, if I have to go to a local market, right, for, for a job, and I'm obviously not going to be on CNN right now, but if I want to to get my work up there to the highest level, what do people care about right now? It's what's going on in El Paso. And that's that was the main driving factor. Well, did you have any doubts? I'm sure there was Maybe, especially knowing that you're coming again to the, the border community. I know that maybe the job opportunity was too big, but what were some doubts, what were some things you're thinking about? Um, to be honest with you, I was, it, was, it was all the job. Like, I don't, obviously, I don't know a soul in El Paso or didn't know a soul before I, I moved here. And it's about 1,500 miles from home. And it was going to be just a, an entire change of my life and the biggest jump ever, right? Uh, but... For my career, it's what I had to do to take that first step and get on and get on the train and and uh, and, and start my professional life and, and become a reporter. You have to take that dive. It, when you talk about uh, the the nature of the profession, it's uh, it's a lot of two year stints in different cities, and you move and you move and you move and try to climb the ladder. And it's it's just the expectation and understanding that these kids graduating from college, their first job is going to be in like Billings, Montana, and like just the most remote small towns in in America that you can think of. Because that's how you get your foot in the door, and you learn, you go through the groundwork, and you, and you you pay your dues, and you you build up. Luckily, I was able to start in a community that is so important on a national scale. That's why I came here. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing that. Again, um, I mean, we won't get back to the the news portion of it, but let me ask you because I'm curious. I'm sure you have family members, friends from back home, and when when they ask what you do, and not not what you do, but where you're now working at. How do you describe our city? How do you describe El Paso to them? Ooh, that is a very good question. Absolutely, that it's that it's a border town in the truest sense, right? That that we are we are border city personified. Uh, I, I definitely, at this point, have have come to describe the area the same way that um, a lot of people have. Whenever I do stories about about border relations, and that. Like we are an interconnected city with a wall in between us here in El Paso and Juarez, right? That it's a it's a, a borderland community where, um, yes, there's an amazing culture and the people are incredibly welcoming. And uh, the, the culture shock was more about me just being unfamiliar than anybody being, you know, outwardly rude to me or, or not accepting. That never happened to me in El Paso, which has been awesome. Everybody's been so welcoming. But I do I do try to make people understand like, this is this is kind of a big new frontier in American politics, and this is the place where what happens in El Paso matters. El Paso's stories are national stories. Well, especially what's going on right now with uh, President Biden, of course, and I know there's a lot of things to talk about that. But yeah, I can definitely see that. Now, talking about El Paso, how's your Spanish? You were telling me prior to starting recording the podcast is that 
You've been taking courses in Spanish. Talk to us about that. How's that going? It's going very well. I have been doing intensive Spanish courses for about a month and a half at this point um, with a service called Baseline, where I just I, I set up what time that I have during the day, and it's just it's literally just Zoom calls with people in different South American countries like Venezuela, Colombia. Are those uh, teachers or just people that langu- want to learn English? They're language professors. Oh, okay. from, so, no, their job, it's not like I have to teach them English for a certain percentage of the time these are these are spanish professors in different countries some of them speak english some of them don't so the more some adva- of them don't the most advanced conversations are people who you know born and raised in in a remote part of venezuela who don't speak any english and when i'm like how do you, how do you say this they're like i don't know so i've got to figure it out so yeah estoy aprendiendo un poco de español ahora Wait, wait, wait. I can even hear a Cuban accent there. Because yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I'm talking to... That's the hardest thing. I've, yeah. I've already learned that uh, Spanish isn't Spanish. Spanish is a... It is a mixture of of all sorts of different dialects and accents. And there's... It's already kind of been interesting to me that, unfortunately, I can easily understand Venezuelan Spanish, but Mexican Spanish is a little more difficult to me because I don't spend that much time talking to Mexican speakers. It's all people in, in South America. So the jerga aquí in, in Mexico is un poco diferente. <laughs> I can't even hear a different accent, mm-hmm. kidding, you're right. Now, I will tell you, and we'll talk about it after the podcast, um, you know what? I'm willing to be your Mexican. Like, we'll, we'll talk about how much you're paying them. I'm willing to give you some really immersed classes in, in Mexican Spanish, by the way. It is funny that I'm paying a bunch of people to talk to me in Spanish when 86% of the population here is uh, obviously Hispanic. But um, I don't think they would want to sit there with me and, and watch me try to remember different verbs and, <laughs> and parts of speech. So, yeah, these people are very patient with me while I try to, to, to butcher my way through the language. But at this point, I would say that I'm at a an intermediate level in my Spanish. Like I'm conversational. I can, I can talk all day about my job, my life, my family and um, basic vocabulary. But like when I read news articles that have hyper specific vocab in it, um, I, it's just me and Google translate right there trying to work through it. So it's definitely a learning process. It is. And I'll tell you this much, even though I was born in Mexico, when I go to Mexico city, Monterrey, Guadalajara, their uh, Spanish is so proper that there's a lot of words that I'm like, Oh, and I'm mm-hmm. the Mexican, so I mean, I can just imagine. Sir, with that, have you been to Juarez? I curious. have been to Juarez one time. I went right before the pandemic hit okay. in early 2020 and went and just kind of walked around a little bit, just ate at a couple restaurants and was only there for, for a couple hours. Um, so the big thing for me and one of the, the points of emphasis with my Spanish is like, I want to be able to nail it. I want to go, I want to go to Cometa and Juarez <laughs> and be able to order flawlessly. That's, that's my, that's my whole deal. That's the end game. Nice. Now I will tell you this, that a lot of people from Mexico will tell you that if you go to Juarez, there's other places that you should go. Other than Cometa? For sure. But I get Slander. I yeah. I, la, 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 we'll we'll talk you. about that after. Okay. Señor, um, let me ask you this because I'm curious. Why is it that you want to learn Spanish? Of course, because you live in a, in a border town. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that, hey, we're in America. This is my news are in, in, in English. So why uh, are you wanting to learn Spanish? Because there are stories to tell here in El Paso that can only be done by having conversations with people in Spanish. When the border closures happened last year and non-essential travel was shut down, and we wanted to explore the impact on those people who live closest, the people in Chihuahuita, and uh, and and how it was hurting them when they literally live footsteps away from the bridge. 
if you go out there, these are people who are Spanish only speakers. And I was able to, I had to rely on a photographer who spoke Spanish to be able to facilitate the interviews. And we came away with a story understanding that, you know, they were cut off from their family who lived in some cases hundreds of yards away, literally just through the fence. But the, the pandemic had cut them off and they didn't know when they would see them again. And it was a really powerful way to show that this community had been sliced in half basically by the pandemic. And because of my lack of language abilities, I had to rely on someone else to do that. And I, I hated that, that I was not able to, to communicate and to be able to, to form that connection with these people on my own. So that is a big reason for me because the next time I go to Chihuahua to, to do a story, I'm going to be having that conversation myself. Wow. And that just talks about your commitment that you have to your craft. Because as you're telling me this story, I'm thinking of, not that I know them personally, but um, of course there's other news reporters that have been in the city for a long time uh, that don't speak Spanish. And I'm just curious as far as why is it that after maybe 10 years they haven't chose to. But that's a different story. But again, that just shows the reason why you're El Paso's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not all the way there yet, but um, a really cool way I've started to be able to connect with people over the language is asking for things like movie recommendations and and what kind of media I should be checking out because that's a huge thing for me is to, to get to the point where I still need subtitles to be able to, to follow along stories. But like, um, I'm already loving some of the most prominent and classic Mexican movies and uh, – uh, I think uh, Argentinian in in one case. The first movie that I watched was uh, Diarios de Motocicletas, um, which was the story of young Che Guevara, and that was you know like a, a classic Spanish language movie and one of the 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 big examples to watch. And I'm like I am hooked because I told you already like I got into journalism because I love movies so much. So this is an easy way to marry like the pursuit of the language for me and something else that I really care about. So I've already asked people to, to reach out with some of their favorites and I have conversations with people about what shows I should watch, what movies. I'm also reading uh, a book. You're uh, reading a Spanish book? Yeah, Cajas de Cartón. Um, that is the, the life story of Francisco Jimenez. Uh, he's a professor in UC Santa Clara and he was un niño campesino in Mexico. Um, he, uh, he grew up on the other side of the border but crossed into California and uh, was able to, to live in a farming co-op and came into the public school system and eventually rose to become a professor. Um, but that's, that's kind of like an, a, a very American, a American dream story that he, he was a, uh, a migrant child and, and grew up to become a very prominent and very important figure. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. That just shows that whenever you want to accomplish something, you'll find a way to do it. Because I, I, I also know a lot of people that have been in this country for 15, 20 years. And there's always an excuse, right? Like, oh, no, you know, it's 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 too hard. Or, you know what, uh, that that's just the way I'm, I am. I'm never going to learn. But it just shows, again, uh, that whenever you want to do something, you'll make it happen regardless. No, it's an amazing story so far. And it's given me insight onto uh, the the people who whose stories I've been telling or I was telling when the the big waves of migration hit here, and obviously I can talk to them um, with the help of, of translators and hear that they're from Guatemala and they came here for their family and have like a kind of very surface level understanding of, of why they would make that journey. But until I'm, I'm in the shoes of somebody who's, who's walked me through the fact that like, you know, they want this more than anything for their family and they want the prosperity. But to get there, I mean, he's in elementary school in an English setting and not understanding a word of, of school and having to sit there and the 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 impact and the alien alienation that they suffered to to get that dream. It 
is so much more real and human the stories that these people are sharing wow Nelson, thank you again for sharing that again that just uh something amazing and hopefully people can can follow that as well i want to spend some time talking about COVID, right you you we can call you an expert on COVID per se so let me ask you first of all you interact a lot with city officials right What's your honest opinion on how they have handled COVID since the beginning? Um, my honest opinion is that this situation changes essentially every three to four days in terms of uh, not just monitoring the virus, but I mean, obviously now the vaccine rollout, the, the plan changes at every level. It's not just El Paso making its decisions, right? They, they have to, they have to game plan off of what the federal government says that the state has to say that. El Paso has to do and they it's it's playing catch up basically on a weekly basis so I feel for them truly to be in this position of making decisions and that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be holding them accountable because that's something that I need to do as well especially it's never really me asking asking questions that I'm generating right everything that I do is a situation where somebody in the community tells me this isn't adding up to me they're not understanding our needs and something's wrong here and we can do something better. So it is, it's never intended to attack the people who are making these decisions because I understand the fact that we're all in this together, right? This is a pandemic that affects all of us equally and these people are trying to do the best they can. But when people tell me that something needs to, to be better, I'm absolutely going to go and take that right to them. Right. Because by the way, and, and I... A hundred percent agree with you. I have never questioned the intent of people. I know that everyone wants to, of course, help out with whatever it is. I just do question, do we have the right people to do that at times? Uh, for example, if you recall when, when Judge Sumaniego wanted to do the, the second shutdown or the third one at this time, and then there was that part that um, was that the city major like did not. So again, that I don't blame their intent for both. But there has to be a way to communicate better. There has to be. There has to be different ways that there, it wasn't taken and they don't see. And this is something that I was talking to Shane and Lizzie. Um, as far as, you know, there, there has to be a way that it wasn't done. So we have to hold someone accountable. And I don't mean firing people. I don't, I don't mean it that way. But someone has to say, you know, what? the ball was dropped here and it's not going to happen again. And I don't see that at all. So since you interact with them closely, I just wanted to, see, to hear your, your, your take on that. No, absolutely. I think that that was... Um, kind of that was a disappointing situation when when the leadership were were basically just duking it out like that in in the public sphere, and really you don't you never want to be in a place where the county leader and the city leader are issuing just just smack talking statements about each other right during a public health emergency when what the community needs more than anything is to be united in terms of leadership. That was very that was very unfortunate and uh i don't think anyone reporting on it got any pleasure out of the fact that we had to release the latest statement coming from one side or the other it was it was it was really a sense that like we this isn't what we need right now um so that was yeah you you picked a, a perfect example of a time where we had to to take it to both sides and and say this is this is not okay and this is what this is not what people need we we have to have a sense of direction here because if if one side's giving out a different set of rules than the other and you guys are, are supposed to be the the authority and who people turn to nobody's going to know what to believe and then that was the biggest thing that people were telling me like somebody just said there was a shutdown but it's, the mayor just said that it's not enforced 
what do I do with my business? And those were the hardest questions for me because I was like, uh, legally, I think the county's opinion is is the the precedent because it's it's more important than the city's. Um, but also, it doesn't look like it's going to be enforced. So uh, that was that was one of the hardest things. It was that that was a period though where I committed myself to to literally broadcast every single twist and turn in that saga of the shutdown, the shutdown story. And that was when people really started gravitating to my work, I think, for the first time. And people started to to trust me in that sense as, as like a COVID authority. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that, that, not that got me upset, but a lot of times they don't realize is that it's not only that disagreement that they have, but they're not, they, they're not seeing that they're turning people against people, right? Because if you feel this way, guess what? And then maybe your neighbor or someone else feels the other way for the most part. And, and unfortunately, we don't know that. Again, just look at the intent. I always never question the intent from both. It was just the process, the way it was done. And unfortunately, there's people fighting against each other. Now we have a third situation that shouldn't happen because of that. Without the clear direction, it was making people choose mm -hmm. which set of rules to follow. And that was, I mean, I'm sure there were families that were torn apart by, by people who wanted to be as safe as possible versus people who needed to make decisions for the health of their business. Um, and that was... That's a situation that I'm glad is in the rear view. I would say that is for it? this community. I mean, the <laughs> look, the, we have uh, we have uh, two Democrats in terms of the local leadership at this point, and they say that at this point it's going to make things way easier because part of the issue was Mayor Margo was aligned very heavily with, uh, obviously, Greg Abbott, the Republican governor. And that was that was a relationship that um, the county judge said was, was – complicating things because it was part of the disconnect that they had to cross party lines in order to accomplish certain things. Uh, he, they say that at this point with Oscar Lisa in the seat that they have, they don't have an aisle to cross and that makes decisions a lot easier to make. Nice. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the community? How do you think that we as a community have handled this pandemic? Not city officials, but now we as a community. I think El Pasoans have to be commended for the way that they turn things around because yeah absolutely the when we became the epicenter of the pandemic that was kind of like a just a, a groundswell that slowly built up and became this disaster for us right and if people didn't change their behavior we would still be there today but they did we have the uh we have the data to show that that people stopped moving around that they stopped frequenting some of the most high risk businesses and only really started leaving for essential reasons in the, the majority of, of instances. And especially right after things got to those just awful apocalyptic levels. So the community needs to understand that they, they stepped up to, to make El Paso you know, not, not hurting in a world of hurt the same way that they were. No, I agree. A big percentage did. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I went... I myself used to not go out like to a restaurant or or maybe just driving by a, a, a not a nightclub but one of those restaurants bar and then I see it's, it's almost at capacity like oh are we really contributing to that but then you see the other people that you know about some family members that are did choose not to go out and not to do the family gatherings so again I, I can see that tick but again sometimes it seems unfair for the like so that some people um, are the ones that we should be thank not to be thankful for, but the ones that maybe contribute the most 
when you compare to that sense. Senor, I want to go back to a press conference because I, I, I remember this. And, and when I first saw it, I was like, I'm going to ask him this when, when Keenan is here with me. Do you remember the press conference, uh, the city major, that you asked him specifically about a city employee going out, right? Uh, no, 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 wait, wait. Uh, not going out, having a party right before the when they said or asked the city not to have gatherings, right? Do you, if you can please tell us what the response was for maybe someone that's not familiar with that. And also most important, what was going through your head as this, well, as you were hearing this, the response. Yeah, that was a situation where we got some pictures of uh, the city attorney, uh, Carla Neiman, who was holding a birthday party for her daughter. And we, the photos suggested that the party was being attended by people outside of her household. This is one of the highest ranking city employees in, in all of El Paso. And it was either that week or the week before that they had passed the directive saying that gatherings were going to be restricted. You shouldn't be gathering with anyone from outside of your household and only essential activities were, were going to be needed. And we went to the city and I did ask the mayor, you know, we got this evidence that this is happening and that this party was thrown by one of the highest ranking city officials, just as you're telling everyone else in El Paso that this is a, the set of rules they need to follow. Um, so if the highest ranking city employee is doing this, how do you expect everybody else in the city or just, you know, re regular El Pasoans to follow these rules? And yeah, Mayor Margo responded that he had heard about the party and that he was upset that he hadn't been invited and that he wanted some cake. What was going through your head? I, I, I make a lot of jokes sometimes when I'm not supposed to write comments when, hey, not. But even I knew that, you know, that, that was not a response that we are, as, again, as a community expecting from, from, from him. So what was going through your head? Um, it was obviously not a serious response, right? He went on to clarify that he, he had understood that it was just members from her household. Um, but when we said that, you know, the pictures don't suggest that, uh, he basically, he blew off the question, right? And that was the, the react, the reason that it got such a strong reaction was people, we're feeling that we were in such a, a state of emergency that every single question or, or aspect of, of, um, of decision-making needs to be treated with the utmost seriousness. And when that didn't happen, I mean, my mentions were just filled with, with dozens and dozens of people who were, who were upset at that uh, reaction. In your head where you're thinking, this is great news. This is going to make a, a great headline. Or you're like, oh, I can't believe he just answered that. I knew immediately that it was going to it was gonna make people talk. That was definitely something that Which in your head. line of business, it's a good thing? Um, it's not always a good thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be something. We, we might get some clicks on an article, right? But um, I care first and foremost about El Paso and the health of the community. So I always want to make sure that the people in charge are, are doing things to the best of and most utmost seriousness of their abilities, right? Okay, so yeah, well, we'll leave that um, at that. Let me ask you, continue with COVID. You, again, and this is something that um, we already um, touched on, is that you've been able to do really good through COVID, right? So has this been intentional or did it fall in your lab? Tell us the process as far as maybe was it a decision you made like, okay, this is happening, I'm gonna have to take full advantage of this. 
Talk to us about the process, please. Well, I've been every day throughout the entire pandemic, I, I do an update on the numbers and to make people understand what the trends are. And because those that's the that's the data that people use to make really key decisions about like, am I going to send my kid back to school and things like that? I want people to have that access to that information in a really accessible way. So I post the city's graphics and tell them, hey, look, in the past week, hospitalizations are up this much or, or things like that so that it's in really plain language and they can understand. Because I wanted people to have that at their fingertips, that information to, to dictate how they go about their daily lives and what decisions they make. So that's been one thing. But when I really took, decided to take it into overdrive was the shutdown saga. When I, when I saw that this was important, this was attracting national attention, that there was this disconnect between the city and county. And I knew how critically important it was that everybody understands exactly each twist and turn of this story. Because like I said, these people are like, do I close my business or not? Am I essential? Am I, what do I do? And uh, they, <laughs> there was just so much overload of information that I decided like I'm going to be the guy that's on top of it. I'm going to take full advantage of the situation in the sense that I'm going to help the community, but at the same time, I want to make sure that my work gets noted. I wanted course. to be the authority on, on the shutdown. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have been, by the way, sir. So thank you again for that. Um, what are some other positive things that COVID has brought to you? I don't want to say that COVID has brought me well, well, positive. <laughs> In any situation, and hopefully you agree with me, there's always, of course, the negative, but there's always positive in every situation, right? In my case, my business went down up to 40%, right? And this is something I was talking to, who was it? Was it, uh, oh, with Rick, but even though that like that was the negative, but it brought a lot of positive things. First of all, I was able to adapt, I was able to do other things, I was able to have time for something else. So my take is, what are some of the positive things that COVID brought to you? I think um, in Maybe my personally. situation mm -hmm. and in, I have to say, countless family situations, it, it showed me what matters to me because, um, you know, when we're locked down and when you're, when you're in a position where you're scared and you don't know what's coming up next, you kind of gravitate to the things that are important to you and you take stock of why you're doing what you're doing and, you know, what kind of life you're leading. And I think that um, that was part of the motivation that I decided to go so hard with the shutdown saga and also to, to try and step up and be like, I'm going to be the guy for the pandemic for these people. Because I was like, this position of community trust is, is really so important to me that the people in El Paso look to me for, for help for, I mean, these are people who I, I constantly, I feel a lot of responsibility for people who, who come into my mentions and are like, you know, my rep, my landlord is threatening to raise the rent on me. I think that's illegal. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And like in a lot of situations, if I do the right story, that could have an impact on their life. And that is something that it made me understand what, every day why the work that I'm doing mattered. Wow. Yes, absolutely right. And thank you for that. Because again, I remember when the shutdown, you were the one that I would check in on the news because I knew that as soon as I was going to be in, maybe I was busy doing something else. You know what? I was going to hear from you. And now that you, again, the the other stories that maybe I do not know about, it just gives you a different perspective on the importance that you don't know how it's going to impact someone else. So again, thank you for that. Senor, my final question on COVID, give us some insights on the vaccines. I still don't get it. I saw just a friend post something. He's about, he's 25 at UTEP. He's getting his vaccine through UTEP. And I understand, I think they had, I mean, of course, you right now you're going to give us a little bit more details, but I don't understand why him being 25, 26, 
instead of maybe the hairstylists that are a little bit older and again maybe they're not so in touch with social media and and what is it what's going on with the big scenes so for everyone's understanding the current progression for our rollout is that the state of texas is vaccinating phase 1a and 1b personnel phase 1a is anyone you would think of as frontline workers who are going to be nurses and people treating covid patients but also a ton of other positions like uh, emergency services firefighters who drive ambulances pretty much everyone you can think of under first responders and that's phase 1a phase 1b though Texas was the first state in the entire country to kind of break from the CDC and decide to move into phase 1B. And this was a very deliberate decision because it opened up the vaccine pool for possible registrants to so many more million people in the state. And phase 1B is people over the age of 16 with underlying conditions or severe conditions that would make you more prone to a severe reaction to COVID-19. And it just anyone over 16 that would have things like diabetes or asthma or conditions that would classify you as high risk, but also people over the age of 65, just anyone. So they're all eligible for the, for the vaccine. That's where we stand in terms of today's rollout, but there's no, there's no real difference in, in the priority of the two groups at this point. They're both, it's open, it's open season for both of them. If you can get a slot, right? Cause UTEP got their own batch of vaccines. 975. Seems, right? Yeah. Are they following that protocol though? They're following their own. I mean, I know their staff, maybe or their elderly. If you're over the age of 16, the current system in El Paso is based on the honor system for phase one B. You don't need to present a doctor's note. You show up and tell them that you are asthmatic and you can get a vaccine. Okay. Well, that explains a lot. Um, you, my friend, that got the vaccine, I really hope that that was just supposed to. But okay, that makes sense. No, we I never mean, a know. ton of people I mean, are that, concerned that, about that, it, right? Again, that could be the case. Mm-hmm. It's just that, again, there's so many questions. And then I think one of the things you were covering maybe today or yesterday was that, that, I mean, what if, again, I don't know about this. I don't hear about this. Uh, uh, the hairstyles maybe don't speak English. Who? How can they contact someone? How do they sign up if maybe they're not in social media or maybe, the, again, they don't know about this? So Right. Uh, the city's list is managed through epstrong.org and a new website that they launched, which is uh, vaccineep.org. They have, they have a new registration site that's supposed to make things a lot smoother. Um, but everyone's seen these stories about the concerns that they have like hey my 30 year old neighbor just got vaccinated yesterday he's healthy as can be and my grandma can't get a slot what's going on unfortunately that's a nationwide issue right nobody's happy with the way that this rollout is going and that's a product of the supply this has been a situation where we have at this point pfizer moderna and hopefully coming up soon uh, a new vaccine from johnson and johnson that could be approved according to the state in the month of february so that would greatly increase supplies but right now it's a trickle we get like ten thousand each week obviously there's there's a county of a million people so it's going to take a little while because that's that's going to be you know more than a million doses it's you have to get two shots in some cases for pfizer and moderna it's it's a process where people need to the city just says that you need to be patient and and just kind of keep the faith that your number is going to be called but i think one of the big one of the biggest frustrations we've heard from people is that the city's website where you just go in you plug in your name you just wait after that like there's no there's no notice given about where you stand in the waiting list which is frustrating for a lot of people because they might just get a call and they're like go get your vaccine tomorrow and you have to be ready well i don't know about that all right Mm -hmm. well do you 
by when do you think OPAS will be vaccinated? I mean, just an estimate, of course. Our timeline right now is that the general public vaccines for all who want them is going to be happening in the summer. In this summer? Okay. In the summer, yeah. By the end, by September, we are trying to be vaccinated. Herd immunity is the is the goal here. Um, that's something people talked about before in a in a in a less healthy context by saying that people should just all get infected and that once everybody's had the virus, then we'll all have herd immunity. That's what the vaccine are, is doing by making sure everybody has antibodies, at least 75 to 85 percent of the population. At that point, there's not the risk of the virus running rampant through the community and we can safely reopen and maybe even do away with some of the safety measures like there is a future without the understanding right now is that there's a future without masks and social distancing, but it comes after we hit 85%, which is hopefully going to happen by the fall. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good. I wanted to ask you, have you heard any stories of people that did get vaccinated? Well, that, that got the vaccine and maybe got sick, anything like that? Have you heard or, or so far so good? Luckily, there have been some stories about people having a reaction to a COVID vaccine. Um, not in El Paso, even okay. in, in the entire country. Like there's been a few sco- stories like the New York Times did a report where a doctor got his first shot and had an allergic reaction and had to give himself an EpiPen shot to, to ward it off. And, you know, they do this big headline and say, you know, doctor has severe reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine. And then like nine paragraphs down, they also add that this reaction has been documented in about one in a million recipients of the vaccine. Look, it does seem like it's a really safe process at this point, which is awesome because people have talked about booster sickness and that's the second shot. So apparently the the first shot might make you have some symptoms that amount to like a sore arm. But the second shot where you get the full dose of immunity, um, that's caused some people to maybe feel a little under the weather for a little bit, but nothing like a severe um, anaphylactic reaction. Uh, so that's something I think people have worried about, but from from my understanding, it's not it's not serious. It's just like, hey, your shot's working. Okay, well that's good to know. I was just curious to see if maybe you heard anything from El Pasoans. I haven't heard of any El Pasoans who have said like, my my first shot absolutely floored me, and I'm not getting the second shot because the reaction was so terrible. Yeah. And if they do, make sure they DM Keenan. <laughs> <If, course. laughs> have you had an issue with the COVID nineteen vaccine in El Paso? Um, Do you get a lot of DMs when you when you ask questions regarding that? No, absolutely. Like when when I have stories, the best part about the the following that I've been able to build up on social media now at this point is, you know, a day will come where we want to do a specific type of story with a specific type of person's reaction, and all I do is just go to my Instagram stories and say, hey, I need to talk to this very specific type of person and the odds are good that i get like five responses that day and that's more than enough to go off of for a story how do you filter which one to pick whoever comes first like when i'm a reporter yeah when i'm a reporter on deadline no it doesn't matter and i mean maybe a situation will happen where somebody's got a better story and they come late to the party and i'll be like "Uh but i would much rather have the story to be able to tell so people can understand what's going on rather than you know delay it and try to, to fit the better one in well, we'll talk about that process as well right mm-hmm. now. Let's talk a little bit about fake news now. Senor, I hear this all the time, fake news, right? First of all, is that a real thing? Is fake news a real thing? Yes. And let me ask you this because the, the, the reason I'm asking this, I'm sorry, it's because it's all about perspective. Even though they tell you exactly that that wall is black, it can be perception as well, right? So I'm just with the concept, what does it mean? Well, what, what does fake news mean? 
Well, fake news is a catchphrase that was coined by the Trump administration to discredit some of the established sources that uh, basically American journalism is built on in terms of like the New York Times uh, and CNN, obviously some of the biggest antagonists of the president. Um, as far as I understand it, it is just a catchphrase for for the far right to discredit real journalism and um, to, to cast doubt on some of the stories that have been critical of that administration. Uh, it's it's my understanding that it's not it's not a genre of of, diff, of websites that are that are just you know not based in fact. Because what I hear all the time, especially when people are not um, agreeing on something, no, you get your news or fake news from a fake source, and then you hear the same person talk about the same. Like, what, what if the, both of them are watching the same thing? It's just the perception that they're getting. For the average person, how can you tell fake news from real news? Um, an easy way to do it is on if you're getting your news on Facebook. And <laughs> That's one, yeah. Yeah, that has been the biggest issue with spreading disinformation about the election and other other aspects of our life, and even coronavirus safety measures. Um, there are people in you know the community who've been led to believe things like like wearing your mask causes you to breathe in your own CO two, and it's actually worse than COVID, and and all these things. There's so much misinformation about about health and also the election that's come through because of. Uh, Facebook and Facebook news. And the easiest way to to tell is to look at the sourcing of the article. Like you're clicking on something that's been posted by like freedomeagle.net. Okay, let's try to contrast that and see if you can find the same source on something like the Wall Street Journal or, or any credible or even a local news website because local stations, and that's, that's a whole other discussion, but um, Nobody should ever say fake news to a local to a local news person because like these are people who literally just you know make make very little money and put themselves through the ringer in this in this job in this occupation to work for the community and to and I mean in some cases these are they're like meteorologists who are telling people it's going to rain and they're getting fake news comments and that's just infuriating for 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 people inside of the industry because uh, they give like they give their heart and soul and, and get a lot not a lot in return to to really help people yeah that was great advice and as you're telling me this i just know about a lot of people not even sharing articles just a comment from someone else a post from someone else that again you're like really and it's then it's become yeah just like an argument refrain the, where if you don't like something that's being shared that's fake news and guess what and in the comments oh yes and then and, and they just come up with like another story to kind of validate that fake news or whatever exactly. that story and it's just a circle that goes on and on and on. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for that, Senor. Let's go into the process of a story. Uh, you've been a reporter for two years now here in El Paso. What's the process? You, Who tells you, okay, you're going to cover this. Do you come up with that? And then you drive all the way over there. You interview people. You write your own script. Well, maybe I'm telling you the process. Well, tell me what the process you is. You actually, yeah. yeah, you did a good job there yeah. laying it out. But I am a, my position title is multimedia journalist. So the expectation is that... I come into my day and I pitch the story and that's, you know, whatever idea I have that people need to hear about and what's affecting the community. Where do you get that? I'm sorry, it's Social media a lot of the time, but also if it's a situation where there's an ongoing situation like with the uh, the vaccination process or, or, you know, testing earlier on in the pandemic, like overarching coronavirus stories, I'll, I'll say that there needs to be, I'll think like, hey, we need to ask this question to the city and make a story out of that. But... 
you know, I've got to pitch the story. I've got to come up with the idea and pitch it. And so if it's approved or if there's something more important, maybe they'll tell me that my story is something different. But regardless, I get the assignment. And yeah, I have to I have to drive to wherever and I have to shoot the video. I have my own my own camera and, and recording equipment and interview supplies as well. Uh, so I'll do the interviews. I will shoot the video. And then come back to the station, and I need to edit the you edit the, package. the whole thing. Yeah, so I'll voice it over using a microphone that looks a lot like this, and I do the voiceover, email it to myself, and then I um, I have a script ready after writing my story, and then I edit the story. And all of this is it. It's only about a, a minute thirty project on when it's finally rendered and exported, but you know it's a whole day affair because there's so many steps of the process. And, this is and then I presented it at 9 o'clock. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what's the hardest part of it? Is it getting the story to begin with? Is it once you're in front of the microphone? What is the hardest part no, of this the whole The easy part for me is when I actually get to present it, right? Um, I think the, the two hardest parts are are the story finding process because that's every day. You have to have a good idea and something that is impactful and matters to El Pasoans. And, you know, it can be a random Tuesday in January like we are right now. And I've got to be like, what's what's pressing? What what do people care about? And what do people need to hear about right now? And there there might be a time where I'm drawing blanks. And that's the hardest. That's the hardest part of the job for me, making sure that I always know what people and I'm always bringing to the table what people need to hear. Um, But aside from that, editing after after every other step of the process, like Going out in the field, shooting the video and doing the interviews and everything and then writing, it's so mentally taxing and I'm so drained that by the time it's time to edit my story, I'm just like, okay. Um, but but once you've done it enough, it also is like kind of natural. Like the it's 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 uh, it's something that I've grown to love in in one regard. Like I I own my story. Like I'm the one from start to finish. This is all me. Well, I'm so glad I asked you this because this is something that I mean, I didn't think about it this way, but it seems that reporters, especially the good ones, they have to have really good perception to know and understand what is it that people are going to care about. Because when I think about maybe some people that don't have that good perception, well, it might be that today there's a lot of cars in the road and that might be their story that they may want to select. I always thought it was someone choosing those stories 100% of the time that this is where I want you to cover, well, what I want you to cover all, all the time. But the, the way you're describing it, it's, it's you most of the time that come with the ideas. There's going to be sometimes that they'll, they'll maybe tell you, okay, this is the direction that we're going. But then again, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that reports have to have, be really good at, at perceiving things and the community. Hey, I have to have all the tools to put a story together, but I also have to know what's going on in the exactly. community. Like you got to keep your ear to the ground. Well, Senor, what? Well, a lot of times I'm sure that you, on a daily basis, you deal with stress. How you? How how do you deal with stress? Man, I work on deadline for a living, right? Yeah. Exactly. All those steps of the process have to be done in like a in like a six hour period for me to be ready to have the story ready for for nine o'clock when I present it on the news. Um, so yeah, stress is a constant in in this line of work. Um, I. I get my days off though, and yeah, I'll have to have story ideas for when I come back to to work. But it's also time for me to do things that that you know relax me and that it can help me decompress. Like in this case, learning Spanish. I love learning languages. I'm also fluent in French, so I am quiero ser poligotal, and uh, I wanna I wanna be able to have that like you know just at this point trilingual 
uh, aspect to bring to the table, which is really cool for me. So I love I love learning languages and um, playing music as well. As that's that's a big part of my life, and uh, I think that's something people think is interesting coming from a reporter. It's right? extremely interesting, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> Let me just ask you one more question regarding. Uh, being a reporter now for anyone following you it is more than evident that your progress I mean it's really good the type of stories that you're covering you're being a news anchor on a more consistent basis as well aside from your good looks which need to be recognized what other things have you done or have worked on to get you where you are right now um what other things have helped me on my journey um Definitely the the connection that I forged with the community. Like when I got here in 2019, obviously you get off the plane and and after a couple of weeks of training, they're like, okay, what's your story for today? I was like, I don't know. I don't know anything about these people, right? So the the growth within you know in my place in the community and the fact that people trust me enough to come to me with things has made my stories better, right? Because there's stuff that there's stuff that people want to hear about and they'll pass ones like I want to have Keenan look into this, right? So that that has been huge. You can't overstate the impact that, that that's had on, on my work getting better. But also just, you know, um, time in the saddle, right? The game slows down and um, I understand the things that I need to work on and, and just try to, I'm like, I want to get a little bit better every single day. And um, I do care a lot. I, I, I try to pour myself into the work that I'm doing because I want to be the best that I can be for this community. Well, and again, you're doing an amazing job there. Now, let's talk about the interview you had with the with the governor of Texas. Congrats on that. I really thought your questions were on point, pun intended. Were you more nervous uh, on that interview or were you more nervous on the Cardi B story that you did? Oh, God. I knew it was coming. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Um, was I? <laughs> uh, I would have to say the Cardi B story because that was literally two months into my job and that was a time when like you know every time i went live i was i was nervous and you know do you mind telling us the backstory of that for anyone not familiar with that, i will please? tell you the backstory um i was assigned i did not pitch the story to uh cover the fact that cardi b had been scheduled to play a concert at the coliseum and she pulled out for complications unknown and um they wanted me to go to the parking lot of the Coliseum and see if people came still to to try and see Cardi B, even though the concert got canceled. And I was like, I th- I'd pitched like a really hard news story that day about like migrants and something really serious. So I was I was like, okay, all right, I'll go do the Cardi B getting canceled <laughs> story. Um, and I went out there and I was like, I, I I did interview like three or four people who had come, like some people had driven like five hours from from other parts of West Texas and got to the parking lot and were like, oh. um, I was like, I was like, didn't you guys look at the website? Um, <laughs> but uh, that was yeah. So I got those got those interviews down and then I was like, I want to present it in a way that's going to be memorable and that's going to make people people remember the story. So I decided to integrate Cardi's. Uh, trademark sound yes. which is what i haven't done it in two years <laughs> and i'm not gonna replicate it <laughs> hey i had to try it. <laughs> i know um it's i haven't i haven't done that in years um so i i did occur on air and it yeah i went viral it was on good morning america and all over the place and it was a lot of fun getting the the attention but in terms of me being uh more nervous back then like i was especially nervous because i was like if i nail this it's gonna be 
it's gonna go everywhere. But if I screw it up, then I'm I'm the guy who screwed up saying oh, that girl. That was on amazing, the news. and I will include a link so people can see it. And if you really analyze it, like I did that clip, you can see your hands shaking. I was so nervous. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That that time that was something that probably happened on like eighty percent of my live shots back then. Really? Yeah, like when the camera started, I would just be like, yeah, because uh, um, I was just. What hyped helped up. you get through it? Repetitions. That might help someone. Repetitions, definitely, and and the fact that like. You really can't be. It was it was from a lack of experience that was making me un, uh, uncomfortable. And like when the light comes on, like deer in headlights. Um, but at a certain point, like if you do it enough, like there there comes a point where being on TV for me is just it, it comes more natural. Yeah. No. And and that was great. And the fact that you chose courage over comfort, Sarah, that was amazing. And that just tells again now now that we hear more of your story. Everything makes sense. Not, <laughs> there, nothing happens random. Of course, there's a reason why. And, and, and because of that, maybe that's where, again, it has led you to a lot of other things, right? So thank you for sharing that. I want to get a little bit into a serious topic. I want to talk about August 3rd of 2019. For those not familiar, this is where a gunman killed 23 people. Uh, injured another 23 at a Walmart Super Center. I know that at this time you had six months in El Paso, right? Tell us about your experience around this time. Um, when when August 3rd happened, I was really feeling burnt out at that time with being six reported. months in. Six months in, it was I the honeymoon phase had worn off, and this job is just I was like, this is so hard every single day to have you know the story idea. It's no, it does like I wasn't necessarily having a ton of good ideas because people didn't know who I was. They weren't coming to me with their problems, and I I wasn't having that that success with the community, and I was exhausted. Having and also having you know how hard the multimedia journalist job is to do all the steps. Like I was mentally and physically just like worn down. So I was off actually on that Saturday, and I got called in, and uh, the events of that day just just getting out there to the scene. Um, on top of this Yellow Vista mall, um, Walmart on the on the park up there, and just seeing just the chaos and the people scattering around, um, trying to lock people, trying to track people down, and speaking with multiple people who who were inside and hearing their stories, and uh, just just kind of vicariously living through that day for about twelve hours, and then going to a shelter where the family reunification center was where, you know, people who were inside the Walmart were supposed to go to find their families. And, uh, I was the first person to speak with, uh, the family of, of one of the, the victims of the shooting, which was the Anglesby family. Uh, she came to me, Angie Anglesby came and was, and was obviously beside herself looking for her mother who it came out later was, was, uh, was lost in the shooting. Um, that was, it was just, it was just like, a palpable grief and tragedy in the air for for really a week straight I feel like um I I just I broke down lost it after that day it was the most probably emotionally charged event of my life at that point having to deal with so much so much tragedy and so much pain and people telling me how 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 much they'd lost in so short of a time period but also the fact that came out later that it was an attack from an outsider, um, allegedly telling police that that he wanted to, or, or telling prosecutors um, that it that was a racially motivated attack on on a border community because he was looking to stop an invasion of of you know people into this country. 
that put things into an entirely different light as well because it was like this wasn't somebody who who snapped suddenly this was somebody who allegedly drove for hours from the central part of the state to hurt El Pasoans. That was a direct attack on this community. And I think that that event and the tragedy of it is going to always be my why for why I'm still in journalism and why I care so much about the job that I'm doing. Because the aftermath of that attack was one of the most periods of love and outpouring of support that I've ever gotten from from anyone, and it came from El Pasoans, who would see me doing my job and telling stories about the the recovery and the resilience of this community after the attack, and they would come up and they would thank me, and they would they would make sure that we were doing okay, and they would want to tell us that what we were doing mattered. And hearing it over and over and over again, and finally understanding why the work that I was doing mattered to El Pasoans, and it wasn't just about me being on TV, that was a turning point for my life. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And and as an El Paso, and I, I I hate to speak for most El Paso, but what I felt, and I think a lot of people felt, is that we couldn't believe it. We, we I just in El Paso. I mean, I I know that you you're newcomer to El Paso, but the fact is that those things don't happen in El Paso, right? We hear about that, and we're like, oh, that happens somewhere else. So when it happened, uh, I mean, it was first of all, people couldn't believe, it. and and once it hit. You're like, why? And there were so many other questions. And, and of course, we're turning into the news and then watching another source and then another because we want to hear so much. And, and again, that's where, where like, like you said, now you can see the role that you play does make an impact. The words that you say, who you interview, the story that you choose, because I'm sure there was a lot of things that you could have talked about and, and, and everything was going to be listen to of course but it's just choosing okay this is the take that we're gonna do and this is what's going to impact other more people right so again that that was just something that i not that i was curious but definitely wanted to hear from from your standpoint because you were in the front line reporting and it wasn't only day one or day two how long was the the the, the how long did time did you spend reporting on it was it we long? we we did august 3rd stories for for two straight weeks at the very least. Um, obviously follow-ups down the road with, with victims and their and their recovery process, different families and, and how they're trying to move past it. Um, but but like that of single event consumed my life for for probably I would say the, the next month. Really? Yeah. And that's what you said that even though I'm, I'm sure you were, there was a lot of difficult time around that, having to do all the work that you do, but that's what helped you get through, okay, this is the reason why I'm doing it. It's just a reminder, and from there on, it give you a different light on what you do, right? Absolutely. No, I'm so grateful for the community for coming out because, you know, I, I was also an outsider at that time. You know, I'd only been here for a couple months, and they didn't have to in any way tell me, you know, why why the work mattered to them, but they did, and they came out in droves to, to make sure that we understood that, you know, these stories matter to them and that they that they loved us for the work that we were doing. And that was that was so important to hear. All right. No, and again, thank you for your work. Let me ask you this. Aside from that tragic event, do you recall other uh, stories that maybe have impacted you? Of course, not at that level, but other stories that you remember have impacted you? I think that the defining story of the pandemic for me is going to be one that it wasn't in El Paso. It was it was coming from Las Cruces, but the sentiment of it is is universal, and the the it it made people it 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 humanized the pandemic in a way for me that really I'd been trying to block out because of the the sheer 
you know, the toll that it's taken on so many families. But this is the story of the Garcia family who live in Las Cruces in Doniana County. Let me interrupt you. How long was this? How long ago was this? This was just a couple a couple months ago at this point. Okay. Um, this was a family who their father, Jose Garcia, had been uh, put into a COVID ICU at Memorial Medical Center in Las Cruces. Um, and one of the employees at the hospital, one of the nurses was his own daughter, Carolina Garcia. So she would come to her father's bedside in the COVID ICU and would actually would look after him as well um, while he battled you know, the most severe form of this virus. And the family would, for hours every single day, because this was on the ground floor of the medical center and there were windows from the ground floor out onto the lawn outside, they, they had set up lawn chairs and brought blankets and they were there around the clock uh, looking in on their father and trying to send love while they had Carolina, who they called their angel in the ICU, inside trying to tend to him and, and try to to help him overcome this virus. And seeing the pain there and, and understanding what she meant to them and their family in the fight, it was it was the most it was the most humanizing experience of the pandemic for for me so far. Was be, it hearing uh, the perspective from the nurse, which at the same time is a family member? And then not the from family. the nurse, but even her sisters who were, because um, it was a unique experience. And, and it, it, well, it wasn't a unique experience. All these families who have loved ones who are hospitalized can't go in to, to see them. But, you know, they're separated by only a few feet. And there's this division between this person who they love more than anything in the world who's going through this, this tragedy and the struggle, and they can't be there. But they have somebody who can, who is fighting for them. And unfortunately, Jose Garcia did end up uh, passing away from the virus. And the pictures uh, from the Las Cruces Sun News and other outlets out there of the family's grief were just, it brought it all back again. This is just 400,000 lives have been lost in this country due to the pandemic. And I think that's a number that people can't understand. Like there's no way to visualize the real impact and loss that 400,000 deaths has caused. You can't, our minds aren't built to to wrap around that kind of catastrophe. And it's these small ones where it's a family that is hurt and that is you know shattered by, by the impact. Just one family that really makes us understand. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. All of us, of course, have a different take on it or how we take it, how we feel. Not that we don't believe it because we know that it's real. But, of course, you hear numbers and, yeah, it's a number. You hear the daily, okay, well, maybe because, again, and, and I don't know if it's done because you don't want to see the harsh reality. I don't know why sometimes we block, even when you hear 20 deaths, 30. I know it was not overnight. But it's until you meet someone that, like, you know they're not lying, that you know that you've seen that parent, that grandfather, whoever it was, that, you know what, I, I, I know this person, and this person was healthy before this. And that's when you start, like, realizing and, and, and kind of, like, viewing it a, another way, taking extra precautions. But not only that, but also, um, like, like you said, having a different perspective on my own life, on the things that really matter, especially for those that maybe were not in, in tune with that before that our life can change so quickly. And this is something that has opened up, hopefully, the eyes for a lot of us. And again, hopefully when this is all over, we don't forget and we go back to whatever we had going that maybe was a negative part in our lives. Pero bueno, señor, muchas gracias. Let's talk about, in, 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 in the same line, I know a lot of friends, a lot of people that don't watch news because 
in uh, they believe that you know what i don't want to fill my head with negative news right it's always negative so i don't want to watch the news so i don't watch it and i'm happy and i understand that point of view but at the same time like if you're doing with that with that with the news there's a high chance you're doing that in your real life meaning that you're going away from your problems and you're not facing them now in your case since you have to present and and even if you don't present them yourself but you hear other negative things happening on a daily basis What's your take? Does it affect you? Can it affect you uh, every day work on an environment that you hear negative, uh, negative stuff coming back, uh, back, um, back after back? Absolutely. I think that uh, a conversation that's been had a lot in, in recent years is the mental health of journalists who have to, for a living, process some of the worst days of people's lives and some of the most horrific emotions and, and tragedies and and internalize them. When I tell a story, it has to go through me and it has to I have to turn it around every every which way and understand and present this and and in a lot of ways feel these feelings myself to make sure that people can understand what's happened. Um, you do that every day, even in in a low level situations where you know, it's just, it's a constant stream of negativity and it's going to have a toll on you. Um, when we talk about something like August 3rd, though, it can, it can break people. Um, definitely, that was a situation where a lot of people in the community who, who worked in, in news needed to, to take a step back and take care of themselves because even if we weren't directly impacted, we, the nature of our work is being a vessel for these feelings and and taking in tragedy and and converting it into into a story for people to understand and when all of that passes through you and when you have to be immersed in it for so long like for me a month straight it was disastrous for for my mental health absolutely i needed to i needed to take time to to center myself and to to reflect on the things that you know were positive about my life, my job, um, but also to you know to rely on my friends and family because uh, then the nature of this work is absolutely it can be it can be very deleterious to to your mental health. Are you concerned about the long term effects still? I don't is something you think about. I don't see myself as having uh, ongoing like post traumatic stress from from the shooting or anything like that. I. I do have, I know what it felt like that day. I will always remember the flashbulb emotions of the, the air being thick with just the fear and the sound of choppers overhead and the chaos and the just, just overarching sense of, of tragedy and the way that it made me feel and the, the emotions that it elicited in me. Like I can recall them at any given time. So I don't know. It's not like it's ever going to leave me. Definitely. Yes. For the people that think that way, and I'm pretty sure maybe you know someone personally as well that they never watch the news because it's always negative and they don't want to put that in their head. Is, in your opinion, of course, everyone has their own opinion on this. Is that a good take on it? it is that a, a bad take on it? Is that, I mean, it's going to be up to them. What are your thoughts on that? There might be normal situations in your life where it, in regular times, if you don't watch the news for a week, you might miss that there was a car crash on I-10. And you might miss that, I don't know, the, the back to school is getting started and 
some 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 natural normal stories and and just you won't be updated on what's happening in your community that's what you're going to be missing out on right you won't know what's happening in el paso and maybe that's not something that you're interested in and it won't have any bearing on your life if you skip the news this week you might miss your chance to get a covid 19 vaccine and this is a time where the information that we're giving it's not i'm not just telling stories i'm telling you what you need to do in your life to take the best steps for your family to be protected yeah, that's a such a great um, view on it. I also see the other type of people that sometimes just watch the news to have something to complain that same night or maybe the next night. Oh, yeah, El Paso City officials or vaccines with the purpose of this is like my material, which I'm going to hate on this week. You know, so I mean, and of course, we have the, those type of people, but um, hopefully we f- find a balance because I see both, um, again, those perceptions on both. Just to close up the topic, sir, what are some recommendations that you can give people that want to start in journalism? They want to start in journalism uh, in a career. I think that you need to know what avenue you would like to get into because if you want to be a reporter like me, you have to have a certain set of skills in order to be considered for a job because everybody at the entry level needs to be a multimedia journalist. So if you show up for a job interview and you don't know how to edit video and you've never touched a camera before, they will say thank you very much and they will throw your application away because you can't do the job. Um, you have to have a very certain set of, of, of really highly technical skills to be able to to be a storyteller on top of having the command of language and the ability to write the stories too. So it's uh, the, the jobs changed a lot on the broadcast side of things, but the foundation everybody would need right away is an understanding of AP style and how to write in in that kind of either broadcast or print way in, in a form that's correct. And that's something that even if it's not a necessarily a degree, this is something that you could that you could do at EPCC is to take a writing course in, in AP style and to understand how to how to convey stories like that in a, in a grammatically right way. That's the building block. But the other way, which is so easy, is to is to follow the work that is already being done in your community to understand what ki- what kind of stories are being told and, and how to tell one. The easiest way and something that I relied on so heavily when I was looking to to get better as a reporter was you know how how are these guys doing it? How are the best in the business telling stories so that I can emulate that? How about when they? What advice will you have for for newer people that maybe have at a moment that they feel overwhelmed that maybe they want to quit? What's some advice that you can give them to just keep going? I think maybe think back on when you, the work you did had an impact. When you can point to something that you did that that made a real world effect on your community. Even if it's not like, I mean, in the best case situations, a story that I could do could change laws that could change the way that the world around us operates because of uh, something that we brought to light and that needed to change. But even if it's not that huge of an impact, think of something that changed, that that brought peace to a family during a difficult time for them. Um, Even though I always think of the hardest part of my job is trying to, to make families air their grief on a lot of the time, some of the worst days of their lives when they've lost someone. And unfortunately, the most pressing time for me to tell that story is like maybe the day before the funeral or the day that they lose someone. And I have to show up and I have to say, hi, I'm Keenan Willard with KFOX. I'd really like to to do an interview with you right now. And, and in the back of your mind, always uh, and really more prevalently at the start of my career, I, I felt bad about it always that I was like, ah, these people don't want to. 
they don't want to talk to me. Like I'm intruding on the worst, the worst day of their life. You know, they just lost a son or a brother, and and here I come with a camera. Like, hey, can you can you be sad for me? Why are you so sad right now? And I I didn't understand the meaning behind it, and it wasn't until I read another story about uh, a journalist from I think it was in the state of Maryland who felt the exact same feelings that I did about that kind of storytelling, who had an assignment where he had to speak with the mother of a daughter who'd been killed, and I think in a a car crash or in a murder. Um, She'd been lost, obviously, a horrific, tragic death of a young woman, and he'd been told that he needed to call this woman and and get her story. And so he's dialing her up, and he's like, I'm the biggest jerk in the world. I'm going to call this woman her lowest point. And he was already, you know, you prepare yourself to be told that, you know, get out of my face. What are you doing? And he called her, and... This woman was overjoyed to hear from him because she was like, I thank you so much. I want to share who she was. I want to tell her story. I want to tell her story. And that opened my mind to the possibility that for some of these people, this is an opportunity because this is a life that happened and it was cruelly lost. But it was also, you know, they impacted so many people and there are situations where we want to share the light that they were in a community or how they touched other people's lives. And there and some families will even in their, you know, darkest hour, they want people to understand. It may it might be a message about, you know, how to prevent something like that from happening again if it was an accident. But even then otherwise in a in like a situation where somebody was murdered, you know, they still wanted to share what a light that she was and to make this uh, to kind of like take back control. And after that, my whole outlook on telling that kind of story has changed. I still, you have to be tactful about it and obviously so respectful because this is a tragedy in, in some of these situations for families. But I also understand that, you know, there might be, this might be something that people can gravitate to and might, it might bring them peace. Well, that's such a great take on it. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to benefit from that. And you're absolutely right. So again, thank you for, for talking about that. Let's talk a little bit about your music career as well. As I was telling my my daughter of who you were, she was scrolling through your Instagram, and she told me, hey, did you know he also does music? And then I'm like, yeah, I know that. And he's really good. <laughs> and I'm like, actually, I mean, again, not because you're mm-hmm. here, but, but it's not bad at all. And it's really good. So I'm like, okay, so definitely a, a lot to mm-hmm. ask around that. When did it start? Is it a hobby? Is it something you want to pursue professionally? Talk to us about that. That's yeah. That's the the question that I get a lot with it because um, it is. I think it's rare for somebody in my in my field where I have to be like so stoic and and professional all the time to also have that kind of outlet too. But music's been a lifelong love. Growing up in North Carolina, I taught myself to play the piano and guitar just from like YouTube, just just learning chords and being able to accompany myself while I sang. And when I moved out to El Paso, obviously, you know, thousand miles from home, I don't know a single soul. And I mean, if not now, when to start writing my own music and see just and just have that you kind of write outlet. your own music? Those were all my songs. Oh, yeah. Those were, okay. I don't know. So uh, I, uh, I I put out I put out four songs, and um, I I'm just so happy with the the outlet that it's provided me for like. Like you kind of said, like there's a lot that weighs on you in this profession, but I also have something that like brings a lot of light and joy to me, and that's music. Definitely, I love I love singing, I love uh, songwriting, and I love uh, being able to hold up that that the art that I made and be like, hey, this is what I got. Nice. Now the question is, is this a hobby or is this something you want to pursue? Right. Um, I think that I am primarily a reporter first. Definitely, I think that um, I'm. 
I'm really proud of the advancement that I've done in my career. And I feel like there's a big, there's a much more defined path in front of me for being a reporter and climbing the ladder than there is for music. Right. If I just have to like, I, what's, what's, what's a music career look like? You have to release a hit song and, you know, get lucky and strike gold. Right. Um, so that's, that's a lot less definite than I love it. I love it. And, and I'll keep doing it. And, um, it's, it's something that, that brings me so much joy. Um, but I'm, I don't know. I'm also not necessarily putting, putting labels on who I am either. I'm, I can be a reporter and, and a musician. Why not? Why not? That's perfect. Mm-hmm. And now I think that our society welcomes that instead of just like you said, just a serious person giving the news. You know what? We actually welcome that and we like that now, right? Because mm-hmm. we realize that, I mean, everyone's normal people, right? I mean, you guys are normal. It's not like I'm different from someone else. So, well, thank you for the take on that. Talking about your career, where do you see yourself in five to ten years? In 10 years, unbelievably, I'll be 34 and, you know, ancient at that point. Um, but uh, 10 years from now, I think that I I want to get to, like, that national you do that level. Yeah, I want to be I, I already, like, regardless of what happens, I want to see how far I can go. Nice. Do you know already what steps? I'm, I'm, you are already taking steps. What else, what else is needed to get to that level? What else is needed to get to that level? Let's begin with that. Um, the biggest thing is just like you got to climb the ladder, right? Um, the the system in in broadcasting is is made up of of markets, media markets, and each one's assigned a number. There's like 230 in the United States, and El Paso is number 93, and it's all based on size from from highest number to uh to the uh the top there in new york city is number one and um the way you get there is just you gotta you gotta climb the ladder and that's why i mentioned like quick stops in each city like maybe just a couple years um that's that's the nature of the business unfortunately nice hopefully you still remember el paso that border town that you started your career and i i have already said and i always will say like there el paso is my why for journalism because this community showed me why it matters well that's perfect and 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 you know what i and i hate to sound the way i want to sound but I know you're going to get there. You know, they're, they're just people that know that, you know what, I am willing to put in the work, you know. It's not only goals, oh, here, this is what I want to do. But no, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm going to do. This is what it's required and watch me do it. So like that, that's so motivating. And again, I wish you um, the best of luck. Let's talk about um, food for a little bit, you know. I usually don't because here in El Paso, we're big in food, right. But one of your posts, I don't know if it was a post or story, I saw uh, that you were eating enchiladas montadas, which is my favorite dish. The real question here, from I don't know, we've been talking for more than an hour, is do you like them with onions or without onions? Now, be careful here. Is this, is this right? a controversial yes. Yes, topic? it will be. Um, I, I would say with onions. Oh, okay. There you go. I is wasn't that right? expecting that. Now, wait, wait a second. Are you just telling me that because you think that's the right answer? Or is that how you like them? <laughs> Something like, uh, tells me you don't like onions. Yeah, I'm okay. about to be canceled in El Paso because because <laughs> of my enchilada choices. I, I will tell you, I've already gotten a lot of flack from, like, my girlfriend's uh, family because they, they laugh at me because I like them with, you know, I like red enchiladas with an egg on top or two eggs and avocado too. Like, just go all out, all the fixings on there. And they're just like that's that's like a enchiladas montadas plus, and um, that's 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 the way to go for me. I love it. Um, some of my favorite places are 
everyone loves LNJ, but also Lucy's West to to get uh, red enchiladas. They they might be my go to. They they those were the ones that I, I posted from a. Uh, I worked on Christmas this year, and uh, it's never that fun to be away from your family on the holiday. But enchiladas brought me some peace <laughs> on the holiday. I I mean, El Paso's Mexican food is the best in the world. Come on, it is, it is for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, so well, I have enjoyed um, our time. So thank you again for the time. Let me just ask you the last question I have for you. Give us something that you love of our city. We can say food, of course, and maybe one thing that you would like to change or improve about El Paso. Interesting. Okay. One thing that I love about El Paso is I think that the city is an example for all of America in terms of the way that that we conduct ourselves here in the borderland, aside from just being accepting of, of basically anyone who walks in the door because of our position of, of, of a border community. Um, this, this community is based on you know, a constant state of, of flow, ebb and flow with our neighbors to the south and what is, right? Um, and it's it's not something that's been received at all with, with xenophobia, with with a feeling that those who are coming into work for the day and heading back are less than, right? It's an understanding that we have a border between two cities, but we are one community, and it's, and it's looked at that way, that we can... I mean, aside from nationality, be just people, and it doesn't it doesn't make anyone better or worse for 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 being like that. Uh, I think that when I was watching stories about El Paso before I got here or knew anything about it, uh, you have that idea in your head of wow, it's right across from Juarez, and it's just got to be this this dangerous community, and it's got to be uh, it's got to be a real rough and tumble border town, and uh, the reality is that it's it's a shining light for this country because of the way that that all past ones conduct themselves in in this situation, and a lot of the time, that was most evident when we were taking the brunt here for for immigration policies that are made so far above the food chain, right at the federal level, when migrants, when asylum seekers were basically just being dropped off, and El Paso had to take them in, like not even the city just churches and just shelters and nonprofits. People had to step up, just the people here in El Paso had to make sure that these people had food and could and could get on to their, their next destination. Because if they didn't, they would be living in the streets. And that's a challenge the community took on. And they didn't have to. They could have chosen not to. And a lot of people may not have felt that that was the right move. But it's what El Paso did to, to account for these people at the end of their journey. So that was that was something that I I love for for love El Paso for doing because it it shows people that like kind of like I said when I'm reading this book about the uh, the migrant from Mexico that it humanizes things for you that El Paso kind of has an understanding of who these people are I feel and that's something that the entire country kind of needs to to ratchet down the uh, the rhetoric and and the temperature here and and bring a little more bring a little more acceptance to the table to be more like El Paso. Such a great take, thank you, sir. It gives them a really good perception that again, a lot of times we don't see stuff like that, and we have to even if we again um, been living in El Paso for all our life, but we need to know what we're doing right so we continue to do that as well, right? So thank you for that. How about the second part of the question? What is one thing that um, you would like to change or maybe? Um, 
Yeah, let's not say that you don't like, but maybe something that you would like to. Putting me on the spot there. Yes, sir, and make it good, please. One thing that I would like to change about El Paso. I think maybe El Pasoans can be a little bit resistant to change, right? I think that a lot of people here can be a little bit set in their ways, definitely. And they can be great things that have been present in a community for a long time. Um, but I I think that, that uh, people might need to uh, you know, open your hearts kind of the way that I was saying in the first part, like the people, but with, but with other concepts, other parts of your life that, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot to, to gain by, by progress in general, I will say. I'm being, being very Is vague. there a specific example that you want to talk about? I'm being extraordinarily <laughs> vague. Um, no, I'm just saying, like, no, it's a vibrant community, and, and I love El Paso absolutely a, a thousand percent and everything about it. And, no, I'm not going to say that there's, a, there's an aspect of, of this town that needs to needs to change because El Paso is El Paso, right? Um, I think the rest of the rest of Texas wishes they were El Paso, <laughs> right? No, you're right. And again, that, that can open another topic, but I do appreciate your honesty because you're right. There, there's some stuff, and, and we can have a whole hour talking about that, which we won't, but, but thank you for that. And uh, again, I, I just want to thank you for your time. I know, again, COVID, it's a busy time for you. Um, I know yesterday, for example, you were called out to work in your day off and you spending your time with me in your only day off this week. I, again, I want to appreciate it and thank you one more time. Absolutely. It was great talking to you. All right. Well, that's all I have. Gracias. Adios. <laughs>